Amen and amen. Well, this, this goes without saying, and I feel, like I, I, I feel like even by saying it that I'm probably being annoying, um, but just in case there's a visitor here for the first time, I graduated from the University of Georgia, and uh, then Karen and I lived there um, for six years of our marriage, so I was, I was in that community long enough to know that during the football season, the welfare of the people is inextricably tied to the welfare of the football team. A devastating loss by the football team would send the people into turmoil. And a triumphant victory by the football team would cause joy and happiness among the people. Now, Before any of you throw stones at such behavior, I've now lived here in Lexington long enough to recognize a similar kind of behavior with the people of Lexington and the University of Kentucky basketball team, and in recent years, also the football team. And if you get that that dynamic, if you, if you understand that connection, then you begin to appreciate the relationship in the Old Testament between the people of Israel and their king. The welfare of the king and the welfare of the people was inseparable. This one man carried the weight carried all the responsibility for the well-being and happiness of the entire people. When the king had success, the people had success. When the king had failure, the people had failure. Now, perhaps you don't get into sports, and so uh, my analogy that I just used didn't connect with you, so let me try this one instead. There's an old southern saying that goes like this. If mom ain't happy... Ain't nobody happy. There's been an addition to that saying that I was unfamiliar with until this week. It goes, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if grandma ain't happy, you better run. (laughs) I like that. But even that old saying speaks to a dynamic of how the, of, of the well-being of one person, right? If mom ain't happy can greatly affect the well-being of all the people. Ain't nobody happy. Well, I I think it's really important to know that relational dynamic uh, is at play in this psalm. In fact, Psalm 20 is known as a royal psalm because the emphasis of this psalm, the emphasis of this prayer is on the king. Out of the collection of 150 psalms, 10 of the psalms are known as royal psalms. Specifically, this psalm was a prayer to God on behalf of the king of Israel before he went into battle. That's the context. And with enough imagination, you can picture the king leading his troops out to battle, and as he marched away from the city, the people of Israel would gather to sing this song as a prayer to God. You see, the fate of the people was wrapped up in the fate of their king. If he won, they won. 
If he lost, they lost. And so it was in their best interest for him to win. And so they prayed to God for him. And even though we no longer have a physical king that leads our nation out in the battle, even though this prayer is no longer necessary in, in a sense in our, to our context today, I think there is still much for us to learn about prayer and apply to our praying from the study of this royal psalm. This psalm has a very unique structure which consists of creating kind of a picture frame around it by placing similar material at the beginning and at the end. Verse 1 begins with, may the Lord answer you on the day of distress. And then verse 9 ends with, may the Lord answer us on the day we call. And so the picture frame reveals this psalm is about the Lord answering when we call. There's a verse uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 4. It's almost a throwaway line. You could easily skip right over it. You could go unnoticed as you read through those first years of man's existence on earth. Uh, But if you read verses 25 and 26 of Genesis chapter 4, it reads like this. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And then here's the simple statement. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what day it was or where it happened. We don't know what caused it to happen. But at some point, humans begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now, we know human nature enough to know that something happened that caused them to do this. Now, it might have been, it might have been the death of a child. It might have been the crops were bad. It might have been that someone was sick. We simply do not know what caused it to happen. But at some point, something happened, and humans begin to call on the name of the Lord. Why do you call on the name of the Lord? With our oldest away at college, I asked myself this week, why does Bailey pick up the phone and call us? What motivates her to do such a thing? Those of you who have been in this position can perhaps relate I like to kid Bailey because she will call Karen, my wife, and talk for two hours about life, about relationships, about Jesus, and she'll call me and talk for two minutes about how she needs money, she needs to drop a class, something's wrong with her car. My point is there, there, there are different reasons that calls us to call upon someone. For Bailey, there's the long relational conversations with mom, and then there's the short practical talks with dad. But what's the motivation? 
What causes us to call on someone? Why do you call on the name of the Lord? You know, this word translated call actually means to cry out. Literally, it's a desperate, passionate, fervent cry. And generally speaking, it's a crisis that causes us to cry out. Typically, there's some kind of event that's beyond us. Some kind of circumstance happens to us that brings us to a place where we call, where we cry out to the name of the Lord. And each of us can probably think of moments, can remember times specific in their life when a crisis caused you to cry out. And as I've studied Psalm 20 this week, I've recognized three different kinds of crisis that occur in a person's life that cause them to cry out. And I want to walk us through these um, expositorily here as we look at Psalm 20. First, based on verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, there's what I'm calling a crisis of fate, F-A-T-E. And by faith, I'm not referring to some mythological or supernatural power. I'm just meaning the set of circumstances that will happen to a person. Kind of the cards that you're dealt. A crisis of fate will occur when we find ourselves in a situation that's beyond our ability to manage. It's too big for us to handle on our own. It's a circumstance that's clearly beyond our control. You see, a crisis of fate is caused by a circumstance of distress. That's the word that David uses there in verse 1. May the Lord answer you when you're in a day of distress. There are three specific prayer requests in uh, verses 1 and 2 shared by David in this day of distress. There's a prayer for protection at the end of verse 1. And then in verse 2, there's a, there's a prayer for help. And there's a prayer for support. Lord, protect me. Lord, help me. Lord, support me. All are prayers that we've prayed to the Lord on the day of our distress. So a, a circumstance of distress causes a crisis of fate, and we cry out to the Lord. Second, based on verse 3, there's a crisis of faith, F-A-I-T-H. Now, a crisis of faith happens when we come to a point in our life where events cause us to question whether we can go on serving God. The surface causes for such a crisis are as varied as individual experience. But there are root causes like insecurity and fear and suffering and disappointment that are common to a crisis of faith. You see, a crisis of faith is caused by a circumstance of doubt. Now, it was a common practice during these times for the king, along with the people, to offer sacrifices to God before going to battle. 
And the prayer of verse 3 is, may he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. And the implication of this prayer is that not all sacrifices are remembered by God. If it was not offered in faith, if it was not offered uh, in accordance with the sacrificial system, then it would not be accepted by God. And so as the king left for battle, the people were filled with fear and insecurity and, and doubt. And so the prayer was for the Lord to remember and to accept his sacrifices. And so a circumstance of doubt causes a crisis of faith, and we cry out to the Lord. And then third, based on verses 4 and 5, there's a crisis about the future. There's a crisis about the future. Now, a crisis about the future happens when we become anxious and overwhelmed by all the unknowns of the future. We make plans for the future. We have desires for the future. We have retirement accounts. We have long-term goals. But then our circumstances change, and things like cancer and COVID bring uncertainty to all of our future plans and desires. You see, a crisis about the future is caused by a circumstance of desire. When the unknowns and uncertainties of our circumstances are speaking louder than the desires of our heart, then there's a crisis about the future. In the prayer, verses 4 and 5, is a, it's a threefold prayer about the future. Verse 4, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. And at the end of verse 5, may the Lord grant all your requests. You see, this prayer, it's for our desires and our plans and our requests. All of us who've ever prayed have brought our desires and our plans and our requests to the Lord. And so a circumstance of desire causes a, a crisis about the future, and we cry out to the Lord. Three different kinds of crisis that cause us to cry out to the Lord. A crisis of fate, crisis of faith, crisis about the future. I'm sure there's many others that we could look at. There's at least these three that bring us to a place where we cry out to the Lord. And it's important to note that the language that's used in this psalm, uh, that our crisis causes us not just to, to cry out, but to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the prayer language that's used. The expression, the name of the Lord, occurs three times in this psalm, in verse 1, in verse 5, and in verse 7. And so it's more than just our crisis causing us to cry out. It's more than just stubbing our toe and yelling, ouch. It's more than just our crisis causing us to cry out. Our crisis causes us to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a biblical expression. It's a very important biblical expression. That, that, and it means the character of God. There's, there's a whole lot that could be said about it, but just for our time purposes this morning. The name of the Lord 
is a biblical expression for the character of God. So in our crisis, we call upon the character of God. We call upon his goodness. We call upon his mercy. We call upon his faithfulness. You see, it's it's, it's not just crying out, my life is bad. It's calling upon the God who's good. And I think this is really important as we think about prayer. You see, when we pray, we don't just pray to God because he is God. We pray to God because of who he is. We pray to God because we know his character. We pray to God because of who he has revealed himself to be to us in his word. That's why we pray to him. We don't pray to him just because he's God. We pray to him because of his character. We call upon the character of God. We call upon the name. God has established a name for himself throughout history. And we call upon that name. We call upon that character that has been revealed to humanity. That's why it's so important to be in this book, because it reveals his character to us. He has made a name for himself. And it's that name that we call upon. And this brings us to a turning point in this psalm in verse 6. David writes in verse 6, there's a shift, there's a turning point. The prayers have been brought before God, and then in verse 6, David writes, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Now I know he answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. You see, for David, just going through the experience, for David, this is why prayer here is important for David. For David, by going through the action of calling upon the character of God, it gives him confidence that the Lord saves And by by calling upon the character of God, it fills him with certainty that the Lord answers. And so filled with the confidence that God saves and filled with the certainty that God answers, he then makes one of the great statements of faith in all of Scripture. We just sang about it. Psalm 20, verse 7. It's a verse that's familiar to everyone. Probably have it memorized and don't even know it. But I want to read it this morning literally as it appears in the Hebrew. The sentence is written in a very special way in the Hebrew so that the verb that gives everything in this sentence meaning is withheld until the very end for emphasis. 
That's not, how, that's not how it's translated in our English, but that's how it's written in the Hebrew. So here's how it reads. Listen to this. It's beautiful. They, the chariots, and they, the horses, but we, the name of the Lord our God, trust. Now, most English Bibles translate uh, that, that verb, that, that important verb that's held there, withheld at the very end. They translate it as trust, and that's a good translation. However, according to scholars, it doesn't fully capture the meaning of this verb. This verb literally means to boast. And we, and we get that, right? We, we, we'll, we'll boast about those things that we trust in. But I, but I like that. And so a more literal translation would be, they the chariots and they the horses, but we, the name of the Lord our God, boast. And I really like knowing that about this verb because it helps me to connect with the first part of the sentence because I can hear a soldier going out to battle, boasting about the strength of the chariots. And I can hear a king going out to battle, boasting about the number of his horses. But we, the name of the Lord our God, boast. Isn't that good? They the chariots, but we the character. We boast in the character of God. Now, my guess is you're not tempted to boast about chariots or horses. Well, we are in horse country, so maybe. But it's so easy for us to be tempted to boast in similar kinds of ways today. What are you tempted to boast about? Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 9, shares an important word from the Lord with us. Listen to what the Lord says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. You know, God says, look, I I know what you're tempted to boast about. Think about, I mean, it's crazy to think this is thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, but still how amazingly relevant it is today. Your brains, your bodies, and your bank accounts. The Lord says, don't, don't boast 
in those things. You're going to be tempted to. He says, don't do it. He goes on to say in verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Now, this is not, the emphasis here is not that he understands all the ins and outs of doctrine or all the ins and outs of all the isms uh, that Keith was sharing with us in Bible class today, but that he understands and knows my character. Because this is what he goes on to say, that he knows that I am the Lord who exercises kindness justice, and righteousness on earth. For these, I delight. Ah, what a wonderful two verses tucked away there in Jeremiah chapter 9. Do not boast in your brains and your bodies and your bank accounts. If you're going to boast, boast in the character of the Lord. who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Paul, perhaps you've already kind of gone there in your mind and heart, but Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that if we're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And he, he goes on to say there in chapter 1, he says, if, he says we preach Christ crucified. And the message of the cross is foolishness to the wise. You see, a wise man would never boast about the cross. It's not happening. The message of the cross is weakness to the strong. You're not going to find a strong man who would ever boast about the cross. And the message of the cross is despised by the wealthy, a rich man would never boast about the cross. Yet, nothing reveals the character of God better than the cross. Paul says, if you really want to understand and know the character of God, look to the cross. Because it is the crucified Christ that best reveals to us the character of God, that best reveals to us his kindness and his justice and his righteousness. So church, when a circumstance causes a crisis in your life, let me encourage you Call upon the name of the Lord. We can be confident in our crisis because we're confident in Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel is that the cross was not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Three days later, God answered him. Three days later, God protected him. 
Three days later, God helped him. Three days later, God supported him. Three days later, God remembered his sacrifice and accepted his offering. Three days later, God gave him all the desires of his heart. Three days later, God made all of his plans succeed. Three days later, God granted all of his requests. Three days later, God saved our king. Because God saved our king, we can be confident that he will save us. We can be confident in our crisis because we're confident in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these precious words. And I, I pray that I pray that I pray that the work that your Holy Spirit will do in us with this word this morning is that we'll be able to name those those things that they put their trust in. Chariots, horses, brains, bodies, our bank accounts. I pray that we can, we can see those things, reveal those things, reveal those hidden things in us that we put our trust in and don't even realize so that we can declare with David that we, but we, the name of the Lord our God boast. Your character and your kindness and your justice and in your righteousness. Lord, just transform us. Man, as we have searched your scripture today, may your scripture search our hearts. Make us into men and women of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, the invitation is for anyone here today who would like to make a commitment to, in Christ, to, to Christ in some way, if uh, if you just want some prayer, if you want to be prayed over today, if you want to place your faith in Christ and turn from your sins and turn to him and put him on in baptism, we'd love to be a part of that in your life this morning too. Let's stand together and sing a song of invitation. Hi.